If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And if you would like, you can put a pinky in Isaiah 53. If you'd like, you can put a pinky in Isaiah 53. I want to tell you a story. It's a story I found on the internet this week, but it is not a new story. In fact, this took place all the way back in 2001. There was a girl in Afghanistan named Zubaida Hassan. She was nine years old and was, member, and was a member of a nomadic family that consisted of her two parents and eight other children. In August of 2001, Zubaida was cooking in her home. And as she was cooking on, on her stove in her home, she went to pour kerosene on an already hot stove. And the flame shot up the kerosene, and she was set on fire. Now, I've, because we have fellowship lunch today, I didn't bring any pictures. But I will describe to you a little bit of what happened. Basically, her face merged with her upper chest. This was all merged as one solid piece from the burns. They did not think she was going to survive. They went to several different doctors in Afghanistan. They went over to Iran or Iran hoping to find something, and they couldn't until February of 2002, on the recommendation of some local shopkeepers, they found uh, they sought help from the Americans. And they went to an army base to hopefully get some sort of diagnosis, some sort of, of treatment and, and, and help for these burns. They met with the State Department, and eventually she was brought over to America to the Grossman Burn Center just outside of L.A. She completed 12 major surgeries in the course of one year. This is a nine-year-old girl. Mm. Within a short period of time, her face was basically back to normal, minus the scarring, because she was able to get help and get somewhere that could take care of her. And as far as we know, the now the story is old, so I don't know exactly where she is today, but I have seen a fairly recent picture of her, and you honestly could not tell anything was wrong. She had her first slumber party on her 11th birthday, March 22nd, 2003. She was given life, and she decided to celebrate. But not only did she decide to celebrate, in fact, when asked what she wanted to do with the rest of her life when she grew up, this was her answer. I want to be a pediatric doctor. Amen. What we desire to do with our freedom tells us a lot about ourselves. Your desires are an opportunity to, well, peek into your own heart and decide that if what you see there is really what you want to keep. And what I've noticed is that largely when people are, when kids are cured by a doctor, they say, I want to be a doctor and I want to help others. When someone is set free by a lawyer or, or an attorney that helps them with their case, maybe it's someone who's been in prison for years or, or maybe it's a youth or, or someone like that, 
largely, well, a lot of the time, they'll change their course of life and they'll become an attorney or a lawyer themselves. We tend to follow the people that inspire us and the people that have helped us along the way because we say, I don't want anyone to experience what I had to go through. But I want everyone to experience what I'm experiencing now. What we desire to do compels us into action. And our actions then reveal to everyone else the content of our hearts. They reveal what our desires were. And it gives others the exact same opportunity to peek into our own hearts and decide, do I like what I see or not? My question to you this morning, given the significance of this week in American history, what are you doing with your freedom? And what does it say about you? What are you doing with your freedom and what does it say about you? In Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus and he's reminding them how they were saved. And he's calling them to unity. He shows that everyone has a different role in the church, but the church only succeeds when everyone does their part and everyone is freed in the space that they were given to do what God has called them to do. And in Ephesians 2, we pick up right at the beginning, verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, Paul lays out a stark reality to the believers in Ephesus. Listen, you were lost and you were hopeless. You were dead in your own sins. And dead people can't do anything. You had chosen one way to live your life, and it wasn't going to save you. We were all there, myself included. I love that Paul, someone that we consider one of the great heroes in Scripture, includes himself when he says, we. No one is the exception to this rule. Verse 4. But God. I love this. Have you ever heard this, the saying? I think I've said it here before, but, but the word but cancels everything to the left. I'm sorry, but it's really your fault. Okay, well, then you're not really sorry. I'm sorry, but you had it coming. No, you're not sorry. All right, listen, I love this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised, up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God, of his own accord, takes it upon himself to free us from the hopelessness that Paul has just laid out. God here is making decisions consistent with his character, that he is rich in mercy and that he is full of great love for his creation. 
But no one forced God to set us free. No one forced God to make us alive in Christ. That was all him. No one showed up to the battlefield and fought that battle except for Jesus Christ. We didn't. We, start, we, we like to look at the story of like David and Goliath. And when we teach it to kids or we teach it to ourselves, we say, well, we're the Davids in that story, up against the Goliaths in our lives. We're up against those who are fighting against us and those who seem insurmountable. But no, no, we're more like the Israelites cowering on the sidelines while someone else fights our battle for us. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, God fought your battle for you. So listen to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here is the crux of what Paul is explaining. You can't save yourself. You didn't save yourself. And you are free. You are free because of what someone else did. You are free because of someone else's work. Jesus. So you don't get to boast about your freedom. But you do get to boast that you were set free. And there's a fine line. Between those two things. You don't get to boast that you earned your freedom. You get to boast that you were set free. You get to boast that you received a gift. Freedom. Whether it is by faith. Or freedom by the country that we live in. Has always come. Because someone else fought for it. And before you attack me. Keeping that freedom is something that we are involved in. But the fact that this country is a free place, that's because of the work of people who came long before us. The fact that it is still a free place is because of the ongoing work of citizens and the people that reside in it. So please don't think I'm disrespecting veterans. I am not. They play an important role, our servicemen and our servicewomen. But you and I did not earn the freedom that we have in our faith. It was a gift given to us. And all the opportunity that we've had in this wonderful country is not an opportunity that we earned. We earned what the opportunity gave us. In other words, luck and privilege gets you in the door, but you've got to earn your right to stay in the door. But all of us had a head start because of the work of someone else. But why does this matter? I hear this all the time. In fact, my generation hears it a lot in regards to paying for college. Say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I worked three jobs to pay my way through college. You can too. If you're poor, you just didn't work hard enough. We live in a country and in a time where your value is defined by your personal efforts and ambition, not your personhood. Your value, what you receive, is directly related to what you do and how much effort you put in to what you are earning. 
And I might be stepping on some toes. We say, you are responsible for your own life. You are not responsible for anyone else's. We say, my rights end where your nose begins. It's a popular saying. But we bring it beyond rights. We also use that to talk about assisting others as well. My help ends where your nose begins. I'm going to take care of me and my family, and it's your job to take care of you and your family. Unless you are close family and friends, I owe you nothing because I don't know you. We regard our freedom as our own. And if you want to take full advantage of the freedom that you've been given, well, that's on you. I didn't get any help. I worked my way up the ladder. So should you. This is the attitude of someone who believes they have earned their freedom. And we see this most clearly in a capitalist system, and I'm not knocking capitalism, all right? I'm not arguing for socialism or communism or any of that. We're not doing that today. I'm just saying this is a reality of capitalism, which is you work for what you get. That's, that's just fact. You earn whatever you are willing to work hard enough to earn. And so we earn a lot of money and we say, this is my money now. So I shouldn't have to pay any more in taxes. I shouldn't have to help anyone else. I shouldn't have to pay for someone else's health care. I shouldn't have to do X, Y, or Z because I earned mine and they should earn theirs. Completely understandable. I get it. I should keep what I earn. I absolutely get it. I hate I hate getting my paycheck and then seeing a whole chunk of it gone. I get it. You want to keep what you earn. In a world where I've earned what's mine, why should I have to cover for others who are, who are not willing to put in that same work? I got mine, so why? Or so it doesn't matter. The problem with this attitude is that we see freedom as something to own. We tack it on to part of the American dream and we turn it into a commodity that only exists within a or uh, that only exists as a limited amount. And only those that are willing to do what I did, work as hard as I did, sacrifice as much as I did should be able to have freedom. But what if you don't have the right to say that? The problem is, quite literally, that if you subscribe to the Christian worldview, you didn't get yours. You received it. I received it. And if this puts you on the defensive, if you're sitting here writhing a little bit because I'm poking at a bear, good. Lean into that. What I've found is the times that I get most offended when someone's talking to me, it usually means they're poking a spot I don't really want to go into. What I'm asking you to do this morning is to lean into that defensiveness. Don't freak out, but lean into that discomfort and ask, why does this bother me? Don't settle for, I don't agree with him, he's just an idealistic millennial, and then write me off. Because I'm not arguing, like I said, I'm not arguing for socialism or communism. 
Please understand that. I love the country that I live in. I love the opportunities that have been afforded to me. But here's where the line blurs. Because you might be thinking, well, you're starting to blur the line, Ryan. My freedom in faith or my freedom in the workplace? Which is it? You're just kind of using them interchangeably. Let me ask you this. Where do the blessings of God stop? Are God's blessings only isolated to your spiritual life as it relates to church? As if spirituality is something to be compartmentalized? Or do they spill out into every facet of your life? When God heals you from sickness, do you not tell everyone you know? When God takes care of you through grief, do you only tell other Christians? You see, the freedom that we receive in Christ should always spill out into the lives that we live. There is no compartmentalization. And James tells us that faith without our works is dead, and our works become evidence of our faith. They show the world what's important to us. Remember, I told you to put a pinky in Isaiah 53. You are welcome to turn there now. So I want to show you something. There may be many of you who have read Isaiah 53 many a time, fully understand, and you know exactly where I'm headed. We're going to start right in verse 3, Isaiah 53, verse 3. This is one of the most famous messianic prophecies in all of the Old Testament, really in all of Scripture. Verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with whose wounds, or by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he, not, he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and, a, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Listen, Jesus is the one person in all of existence, who actually does have the right to say, only those who do what I did, only those who work as hard as I did, and only those who sacrificed as much as I did should be able to have freedom. Jesus is the one person who earned the freedom that he gives and has the right to decide how that freedom is dispensed. Yet you know what he requires? 
Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus, the one person who knows the real price of freedom, has the, and has the ability to require whatever of us in order that we could receive it ourselves. He instead places absolutely no burden on us to receive it, and he offers it freely, as Ephesians 2 tells us, a gift. And the Great Commission, you know, Go ye into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That great commission. Look, Jesus' followers are nothing but a people who were set free, setting other people free. We are nothing more than people who were set free that are now setting others free. Paul uses language in Romans to describe sin as something we are enslaved to. The bonds of sin are broken. And Jesus sets us free from it. And then he says, look, go into all those nations and set other people free. Creating this chain of people setting each other free. But the second that we begin to feel entitled to any of the freedom that we were given... The chain breaks. The second we find ourselves saying, I got mine, is the second we stop setting others free. Zubaida, the girl in our opening story, is a perfect example of a girl who was set free, now being instilled with a desire to set others free. She was saved by doctors, and now she wants to become one. She desired to make the most of her freedom, by giving freedom to other people. In Christianity, we are saved by Jesus. Amen and praise God for it. Amen. And that salvation should compel us to be exactly like him. And here's the thing. Christ set people free. And if we're aiming to be exactly like the one who set us free, then just like Jesus, we should be looking to set others free. Now is the time to go into what our scripture reading was this morning in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading verse 1. Go to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and you devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed. By one another. If you want to make the most of the freedom that you've been given, 
then the call is to serve one another and to give other people the same freedom that you received. Now listen, this is a semantics thing, but I want to be clear on this. You are not the person that saves anyone. It is Jesus. All we do is plant seeds, we lay the truth out, and we let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work. But as people who have been set free in the cause of setting other people free, then the work that we do is whatever we can. And so we, we sow seeds, we do whatever we can to lay that truth out there so that others may have access to the same freedom that we've been given. And I want to make clear that that is understood in all of this. I am by no means implying or saying that you are responsible for anyone else's salvation. The Holy Spirit and Jesus saves, not you. You simply point people in the right direction. One of my best friends, she's my age, 25. I think she's actually a little older than me by maybe a couple months. She's been one of my best friends since my freshman year of college. She started as a theology major, much like me, so studying to become a pastor. And about four years ago, I was in Florida for a, an event that I run every January. I'm gone from here every January for the same event. It was Friday night. We were doing some of the most important work that we do at that event on Friday night, which is we take 400 high school students through communion together and through and finishing and doing one of the last sessions for this big event that we do. And one of my friends who was with me from college, a mutual friend between me and this girl, approaches me midway through everything as I'm directing kids one way or the other, and he says, I just got word that there's been an accident. My friend was driving from Chattanooga to Atlanta to pick up her parents from the airport. They were flying in from California. And on her way down on Friday, she hit a patch of black ice and her car lost, she lost control and her car rolled and rolled and rolled. I've seen pictures of the car. She should not be alive. There is no driver's side left. She was airlifted to a hospital in Chattanooga, immediately had surgery done. We prayed for her that night. She had pins and, a, and actually an entire metal bar put in to basically stint her femur back together. Her femur was cracked in half, and when doctors looked at everything, they said 99% of people in this accident die. And somehow, you've survived. We get back Saturday afternoon for our Saturday evening from this conference and, and Sunday evening we ended up being able to finally go visit her. Can you imagine as a parent sitting in that airport waiting for your daughter to pick you up and then someone calls you and tells you there's been an accident and she's airlifted to a hospital. We went and visited her and she is as sarcastic and witty as, as all get out, she likes to make jokes the same way that I do, so she is in as good spirits as she possibly can be under the weight of a thousand painkillers and under this weight of the significance of her circumstances. 
And my friend Tony and I were talking with her while she was laying in bed recovering, and she said, hey, I have to use the restroom. Can you, can you step out? Because she has to have someone help her, and she's in a gown, and well, we're guys. <laughs> so we obliged, and we stepped out of the room. She called a nurse in, a nurse came in, and I, will never, I don't think I will ever forget this moment as long as I live. They stood her up, and they walked her from her bed to the bathroom. It was about a five-minute process to go about 10, 12 steps. And I will never forget the screams coming from that room. It takes a lot to break me. I didn't cry at my own father's funeral because I wanted to hold on and hang tough. And yet hearing those screams almost did it. And they replay in my head. Luckily, I had someone with me. And what followed from that moment was months and months of rehab. Rehab with physical therapists, a couple, I think she did a couple other surgeries and, and was able to make a full recovery. And as a result of her rehab, as a result of the people that worked with her, the physical therapists, her life was changed, not just by the accident, by, but by what came from it. She left theology and she decided to do physical therapy Amen. because she wanted to give others what she had been given. In the middle of college, she changed everything. When ended up going to a different school so that she could study what she wanted to study. And as of this year, finished her master's degree. And I've never seen someone so passionate about physical therapy in my life. Granted, I don't know a whole ton of physical therapists, but watching her work with people, and I know this because I was having lower back pain earlier this year, and when I went up to Michigan in April, she was one of the people I visited, and she basically kicked everyone out of the physical therapy department and did a one-on-one -on -one session with me to help me out and teach me some exercises to, to help heal my lower back that I could do at home. She created an entire workout plan for me and emailed it to me and did spent probably two hours with me just going over things and teaching me things. And you can just see the passion and the excitement on her face as she helps you. And to this day, she is one of my best friends. When you know that the freedom you've been given is a gift, you don't keep it to yourself. And if you and I, as a community, as a church, as individuals, because some of you I may not see again until Jesus returns, if you and I are going to make the most of the freedom we've been given, then we must do, as Galatians calls us to, which is through love serve one another. There are people in this country and out of this country who are not yet free. There are entire ethnicities that have only had a solid shot at full equality for the last 45 years of our 250 years as a country. We have a long way to go as a country, and we have a long way to go as a people. 
we still have a lot of people to set free. And the one thing that keeps that chain that we talked about intact and going is that we remember where our freedom comes from and we celebrate together. And if you've forgotten that, then this morning is your wake-up call. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, through love, serve one another.